You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. Our streets and sidewalks were designed to be so dumb if we use that word the way like it's used in the tech industry, you know, like a black asphalt roadway that collects heat all day and radiates that heat into the neighborhood at night. This idea that we're going to somehow channel the water away and get rid of it when water is a limited and very valuable resource, um, you know, like widening streets to make room for more cars and taking out mature trees that were like the most best way to make our neighborhoods livable. I mean, there's just an unlimited amount of opportunity in thinking of the streets uh, as smart in every way. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And when I think of sustainability, I think of meeting the needs of the present without really compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. And now, sustainability is a household term, but it wasn't always the case. What is relatively new, however, is the worldwide awakening that action needs to be taken quickly to address the huge economic, social, and environmental challenges facing our planet and people to ensure a sustainable future. Governments, regulators, consumers, and investors are all calling for immediate change. Sustainability is a critical issue that presents both risk and opportunities. Governments need to understand and mitigate these risks within their organization and across its supply chain, navigating a fast-changing regulatory landscape. They need to balance this with finding opportunities to innovate their operations, business model, and products to not only have a better impact on the environment and society, but to provide efficiencies. One good example of this is what's happening in the United Kingdom, where the government recognized that in order to meet the regulations around greenhouse gas emissions that have been developed by international communities, they've had to financially incentivize their citizens and modify their economy to withstand any negative economic consequences from the changes to their infrastructure and regulations, which makes sense. We also have some really solid examples here in the United States. And to tell us some of those and speak in more depth around sustainability, I've invited Greg Spots, the Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of Los Angeles' Bureau of Street Services. He's a widely respected thought leader in this space, and I believe he'll shed some light on areas where governments can look to expand and support their citizens through these ESG initiatives. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Brian. It's great to be with you. So... While we were talking a little bit, you said something interesting, um, and I just want to touch on this real quick before we dive into some of the some of the questions that I have for you. You said it's an interesting time or an exciting time to be a leader in government. What what makes you feel that way right now? Yeah, I think it is simultaneously like challenging and exciting and highly interesting. And I think the environment is changing so quickly in so many dimensions. I mean, in the 10 years I've been at Streets LA, you know, social media has expanded and now our constituents can speak to us directly, can take a picture or a video of what our crews are doing out there on the street and comment about it. So we've become a lot closer to the public. 
the public's expectations for their streets and sidewalks are changing rapidly. And there's a growing, uh, you know, chorus of folks who want more, you know, walkable, bikeable and transit friendly options. There's adapting to climate, you know, and then there are these sort of mega trends like the retirement of the baby boomers, the war for talent, dealing with the pandemic and the great resignation. Um, and also, you know, there's a skepticism of government that has grown, you know, even in a generally politically liberal city like Los Angeles. And, and so there's a lot of kind of cross currents uh, involved in, um, you know, trying to uh, be of public service at this time. It might just be your personality because I think you might have just talked some people out of going into public service leadership by some of those things. But I can completely see why you would look at those things as opportunities, as uh, obviously challenges. But it's another reason why I think, and I say this fairly often, not everybody is built for public sector, right? Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes I think that, you know, big city government is kind of an innovation stifling environment. But I actually see myself as sort of an entrepreneur who's skilled at innovating in such an environment. So I actually feel well suited to the sort of unique circumstances of being a public servant at this time. That's good. I think not not everybody can thrive in those environments. So speaking of that environment, tell me about your role as chief sustainability officer. What are you focused on in this role? I think it's one that, that we're starting to see creep up a little bit. What are some of your priorities? Certainly, you know, to help Los Angeles become more walkable, bikeable, transit friendly, greener and cooler. LA is a leader in this new emerging field of urban cooling, uh, where we're managing, you know, how hot it's going to feel in the city as uh, as the city warms up with climate change. Um, Also, we're greening our operations. We have a sprawling set of operations at Streets LA. We've got, you know, 1500 employees, most of whom work out in the field. We've got, you know, a thousand vehicles, 30 locations. Actually, um, we figured out recently that we burn one and a quarter million gallon equivalents of fossil fuels every year, just my agency. So there's tremendous opportunities to, um, you know, green up our operations and the, you know, thousands of tons of asphalt and concrete that we use every year too. It, And I think I, I mentioned it, it feels like sustainability is really receiving more focus over the past few years than it ever has and not just in public sector in private sector do you feel do you feel that at all oh i definitely feel that and i think this trend is accelerating um in 2015 you know mayor eric garcetti published la's sustainability plan and in that plan he required each of the 40 city departments to designate someone as the chief sustainability officer. And that very morning I went to my boss and raised my hand and said, you know, I want to be that person. Um, And that turned out to be a transformative pivoting moment in my career and developmentally really exciting for me. I I would have never known how powerful uh, that would turn out to be just volunteering for these extra duties. And part of that is because since 2015, you know, the interest in all this has accelerated rapidly. And in California, you know, the past couple summers have been really brutal. You know, forest fires, pollution from those fires that makes it so you can't go outside and walk your dog, you know, healthfully, uh, rolling brownouts, water shortages, um, changes in the climate in your neighborhood, you know, increased humidity, different kinds of bugs. I mean, 
the the change in climate in California is palpable to ordinary residents now. Um, it's not something that they're reading about. It's something that they're living in. Well, and I think people listening right now might be thinking sustainability feels very much like a like a California thing, right? I think we when we hear about some of the issues happening, especially environmentally, which is where my brain goes first around sustainability is kind of environmental impact, even though it touches on a lot of things, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that in the show. the The thing that I think is important, and this is kind of what I was what I was mentioning, is is it's not just isolated into one area, into one focus. We're seeing this all over the world. I know, especially in private sector, there are companies out there that are very, very big in sustainability right now. In fact, won't do business with other partners and companies that aren't kind of accepting their same um, ESG measures, which I think is an important step uh, around the world, especially in the United States, around looking to reduce carbon footprints and, and do um, more good based on what your, what your organization is looking to, uh, to achieve, but do it in the right ways. What are some of the other trends that you're seeing that have really contributed to the, the increased focus on this? Well, certainly, um, like you said, um, you know, the idea of large companies starting to sort of audit their suppliers uh, for the, you know, carbon impacts and environmental impacts or worker safety impacts and up, up the supply chain, you know, moving into that life cycle perspective on the product and then what happens to it after. That's a mega trend um, that's going to change everything. Whereas a, you know, midsize or small supplier, you can't just hide behind some sort of like being a small player and you don't have to do your part anymore. But another, you know, mega trend is the shift to electric vehicles. I was at the ACT Expo conference in Long Beach two weeks ago. 7,000 people attended this conference about zero emissions, medium and heavy duty vehicles. And now you're seeing, you know, the big players, you know, Peterbilt, Freightliner, Mack, um, you know, coming forward, Volvo with, you know, plug-in semis, plug-in box trucks, uh, plug-in ambulances, plug-in parcel delivery vans. I mean, it is no longer like a niche thing that some small companies are doing. The entire, you know, trucking industry is going to be reinvented in the next 20 years. So from, you know, sector to sector, there's such a tremendous shift. I mean, think about it. If you're a tech company today and you have server farms, well, you've just got to be buying your electricity from renewable sources. You know, a whole lot of the wind and solar projects that are being built today are financed through direct power purchase agreements with the big tech companies. So it's just, uh, it's everywhere and it's really thrilling to be a participant in this growing and changing field. Living in DC, we always have the national auto show that comes through and we took our, uh, my wife and I took our, our eight-year-old and, and our, and our three-year-old, but our eight-year-old loves cars. And we walked around and honestly, you couldn't, I mean, you, you tripped over, uh, you tripped over electric vehicles everywhere. It was just the biggest theme throughout the show. You could just tell that, that, that entire market is moving in that direction where it feels like, uh, gasoline vehicles are going to be almost not sold in the next five, seven years, it's almost the way you felt walking out of it, which is crazy to see a market shift so dramatically. When we look at kind of the acceleration of change, especially in that market, but in a lot of different markets, 
um, government technology included, we looked at the pandemic as a huge accelerant around a lot of the um, the changes that we've seen happening. Do you think that had the same impact on this ESG market, or do you feel like COVID actually slowed it down? And the only reason I ask that is when you think about sustainability, sometimes it can have a a nice to have focus perhaps and and not something that is a a must have right now and covid really was very draconian and people really buckled down on this is the this is the need to have and let's focus on this do you feel like it stagnated the the evolution of of sustainability globally or do you feel like it really accelerated like it did um in other uh, other parts of other industries that's a great question i mean first of all i just want to say that the number one role of a chief sustainability officer is to make sure that none of the leaders in your organization think sustainability is a nice to have. You literally have to seek that out and eradicate that way of thinking. And if you can't communicate about it in a compelling and exciting enough way that everybody wants to get on board, then you're just not you know, trying hard enough. Um, but in my field, I saw like two very different things happen. You know, on the one hand, with with the absence of traffic in sort of the spring and summer of 2020, a bunch of cities experimented with slow streets uh, put out in Europe, a bunch of cities put out dedicated bike lanes in, in this, what used in what used to be busy vehicular streets. There was a whole lot of really great experimentation uh, in, you know, changing the allocation of space in the street to other modes, to lower carbon modes. And that was really exciting. But on the flip side, you know, not only were people not commuting, but people were scared to congregate with others in an enclosed space. And that's taken a tremendous hit to transit ridership and it hasn't really come back. So, you know, we obviously need more people to ride transit to, you know, reduce the carbon impact of each commuting trip. And we have to build back from a negative uh, as to what's happened with COVID in our, you know, mass transit systems and and the fewer people that ride it, maybe the less safe it kind of feels at night. So there's been some really difficult challenges in that regard. So in, in, as we're touching on some of the challenges you have, I know you've been rolling out an innovation strategy um, right now that's being deployed in support of these, uh, these ESG efforts. Can you share some of the pillars of your approach and kind of what you're hoping that the, the end state becomes for, for your area? Sure. So... We came up with, you know, some thinking in early 2021 as an organization that our kind of sleepy industry of, you know, designing, constructing and maintaining streets and sidewalks is going through like a historic change. And we're not going to be making streets the same way as we did in the 1950s with the same materials. And so this sort of kind of risk averse um, industry that's very liability focused is suddenly going to have to innovate in more directions than ever and faster in each of those directions than ever. And we thought, why don't we have some sort of strategy for that? Like instead of just feeling, you know, excited, but scared and, uh, you know, buy it, why don't we really take full ownership of it? And we stood up an innovation steering committee uh, last summer. And uh, we had people from all parts of the organization, operations people, engineers and landscape architects, you know, the finance people, um, all kinds of different folks in the room, uh, data specialists. And we came up with 
sort of a list of the innovation topics that we thought were important. We had about 25 innovations and they naturally clustered up into a few buckets. And as we were connecting like things, we realized that there were like five pillars of innovation that we need to do. And we actually decided to name them and then build a strategy around those five pillars. The first one is sustainable streetscape. That's what we do, making the streets and sidewalks more you know, walkable, bikeable, transit friendly, greener, cooler, and, and using water uh, more thoughtfully. Then there are some you know, path to zero emissions fleet. We have this fleet of a thousand vehicles. Many of them are heavy duty and specialty vehicles. If you gave me a billion dollars, I couldn't buy them all and plug in right now because many of them don't exist. So we need to chart the path to zero emissions fleet and you know, be innovative in how we figure out what is the journey to get there. Greening our yards. We have you know, 30 facilities. If you visit one, it's like uh, time transport to the 1970s. It's like visiting, you know, the show Taxi. You know, that's what our yards facilities look like. We need to, um, you know, make them much greener. Uh, then we have circular economy, um, which is um, the idea of uh, not just recycling. We've been really good at that. Like, you know, we're leaders in, you know, taking the old asphalt we mill off the street and putting it back in the mix. So we're, we're, we're using 50% recycled content asphalt. Uh, we've been leaders in crushing up, you know, old concrete we take off when we, uh, you know, rebuild the sidewalk and using that as crushed miscellaneous space. But now we're looking at the entire like upstream impact uh, of the things that we do. For example, we just shifted all of our diesel and compressed natural gas to renewable sources. Turns out that saves you 50% on the carbon because you take out all the upstream carbon emitted by, you know, a petroleum uh exploration, extraction, and refinement uh, process. Um, so that's number four. And um, the fifth one is escaping me. Oh, digital everywhere. So you wouldn't think that's necessarily a sustainability thing, but we actually think that by automating our operations, taking paper out of everything, uh, putting sort of like uh, intelligence and analytics behind everything we do and equipping our staff with tablets uh, so that they can have access to every piece of data they need anywhere they are. Uh, we think that we can radically transform our operations in a more sustainable way. When you take a look at some of those, if we look at the fifth pillar, if we take a look at some of the things around that, it's, it aligns really, really well with digital transformation in government. I think there's a lot of um, operational efficiencies that you gain. Obviously, there's uh, footprint uh, gains that you make there from a sustainability perspective. But do you feel like the proximity to Silicon Valley helps you when you take a look at kind of going digital and, and gives you inspiration and ways to, um, to do that uh, in a, I don't want to say a more efficient way, but I guess doing it in a more accelerated way? Or do you feel like having that proximity actually is just challenging? One, because of the, the talent gap that you would have to, to make some of these happen. Um, but, but two, you almost, people almost lose you because you're, you're, they're so focused on everything else happening in that region. I mean, I personally, you know, I, I grew up in the New York area and I still have like a deep passion and affinity for Manhattan. But, you know, I've been a Californian for 20 years and California is just an amazing innovation laboratory. And it's such an exciting place to be. Um, and maybe like the simple challenge is 
make sure you stand out, make sure you reach out, make sure you're putting yourself out there. I mean, I've been much more assertive in marketing what we do um, into, you know, the, the zero emissions vehicle space into the digital space uh, into, you know, uh, new material suppliers for what we build streets and sidewalks with. So I think, you know, it's interesting in this, in this sort of climate world we're entering, if you're innovating and you're not talking about it, then you're not making sure that other people can jump on the bandwagon and join those innovations. So I'm more and more of the belief that like the communication is just integral to the whole innovation process. That's a good point. So do you, do you take inspiration from some of the things that you see out there that are more cutting edge and kind of fold those back into your programs? Continuously, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm part of some formal networks uh, like the C40 Cities. Uh, I'm on the steering committee for three different organizations, the public sector network, which is great uh, to learn about what other cities are doing with digital. Uh, the um, Smart Surfaces Coalition, which is all about uh, you know, solar reflective pavements and, um, uh, and roofs and other things we can do to cool our cities. And I'm also part of the Global Cool Cities Alliance. So in those formal ways, I'm, I'm communicating, but I'm also, you know, using like LinkedIn and Twitter to learn about, you know, things that other cities are doing. I continuously travel and take pictures and share those pictures. I kind of see myself as like a student participant in the whole thing. I think that's a, probably a good approach to take no matter what, what what career you have, what place in your career you are is to continuously learn and and try to try to evolve and take inspiration from from certain areas. So I think that's I think that's great. Um, I mean, that's part of the thing like climate is really scary. So I'm trying to sort of make it fun and exciting for myself and my staff and all of our partners. Like we we can't get there through gloom and doom. We have to get there through inspiration. You mentioned smart services. Are you taking a look at, and I've seen the, I guess if you want to call them roads of the future, connected roads where you're able to get analytics and information just from sensors that are being placed on the roads based on regular vehicle travel. Is that something you guys are looking at as well in your organization? Sure. Yeah. You know, in LA, the LA Department of Transportation is like a separate agency and they sort of program who uses the road surface and they're like managing traffic. So they're looking at that, you know, more than we are. But, you know, if we kind of zoom out for a minute, sort of our streets and sidewalks were designed to be so dumb if we use that word the way like it's used in the tech industry, you know, like a black asphalt roadway that collects heat all day and radiates that heat into the neighborhood at night. This idea that we're going to somehow channel the water away and get rid of it when water is a limited and very valuable resource, um, you know, like widening streets to make room for more cars and taking out mature trees that were like the most best way to make our neighborhoods livable. I mean, there's just an unlimited amount of opportunity in thinking of the streets uh, as smart in every way, smart with the materials, smart with the use of water, holistic uh, in their approach. And also, yeah, what's the kind of information we can gather? Can the street light pole also have a bunch of sensors on it that tells us about temperature, air pollution, environmental hazards? Um, you know, can we understand, uh, you know, the movement of, of people better? I mean, for example, there's some cities that are now putting up these like bike counters where there's like an automated counter of how many people are using the bike lane. And that can help, you know, counter 
you know, folks who've driven by there once and say, oh, nobody uses that bike lane, you know, then you can say, well, 921 people used it last week. So we need to smarten up in every way, you know, an industry that used to be just about like concrete and asphalt. I want to pivot a little bit here over to your blog that you have called Post Carbon City. This is definitely a passion of yours. So I'm curious to know where are cities headed in a carbon constrained world? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, cities are headed back to where they were before 1900 when they were at a human scale and designed for like being walking around. But then also heading into the future, you know, integrating new ideas and new technologies that previously weren't known. There's something that really excites me. There's a concept that kind of is being championed by Paris and some other cities called the 15 minute city with the idea that like there should be lots of nodes where you can live and be like 15 minutes from work, 15 minutes from your neighborhood shopping and services, 15 minutes from, you know, your kid's school. And it's a really interesting concept to think about, especially in LA, right? Where we're very spread out and we drive around all the time. Um, you know, and you can ask yourself, well, is the 15 minutes for walking? And that would be a small radius. Is the 15 minutes for biking? That would be a bigger radius. Is the 15 minutes for um, an electric bike that could let you go farther? And that would be a bigger radius. You know, can you get your healthcare inside the 15 minutes? So I do think that, you know, the post-carbon city is a place where the uses are more layered and stacked together and holistically integrated instead of there's a zone where we go for healthcare and there's a zone where we go for jobs and there's a quiet residential zone that doesn't have any of these other features. That sort of 1950s like master planned community where everything's separated and the cars, the linkage, um, that's just not going to work and electric vehicles aren't actually going to solve that problem. Where do you see LA being almost stack ranked right now in terms of their maturity in this vision. You mentioned Paris and the 15 minute city. Is that one that is really a North star to two cities? And you would say they were high up. And if that is the case, where, where would you stack then LA and then maybe some other cities within the U S in terms of what, what that, that next level looks like? Well, LA has a really unique challenge in that a lot of it was built out in the 1950s um, around the car model. So we have like very widespread streets, many different neighborhoods. We have a multifocal economy where we have many job centers. The transit system we're building can't just like bring everybody to Manhattan and then bring everybody back out at the end of the day, you know? Um, so we have like multiple challenges in that this city was really kind of set up to be navigated around by freeways and major arterials in the car. But, um, you know, that makes it a really exciting place to work. I do have sort of San Francisco envy sometimes, you know, like a compact city that was, you know, built uh, to be walkable and, you know, narrow streets, you know, human scale. Um, also, like if you go to downtown Seattle and look at like all the building that's been going on, you know, like. Amazon put their kind of new construction in the center of Seattle instead of in some suburban campus like Microsoft or Boeing. And then all this like new housing was built in the downtown to support these young people who want to walk to work. And then all these really great bike lanes were put in the downtown and great transit was expanded. In we're the downtown. doing that in DC right now, um, just outside of DC in the Arlington, Virginia area around HQ2, where they're building in an area that's, um, that's very much a city model 
and then building housing around it and putting um, putting better ways for for the new employees. It's going to be an influx of about twenty five thousand uh, jobs, seventy five thousand employees coming into HQ two, and it's and people that live in the DC area can can attest to this. It's not an area that can really uh, flex that much to to bring on that many people. So Amazon's bolstering that that infrastructure in that area to make it. Um, I guess have the ability to scale up to 25,000, uh, extra employees in a very consolidated space. So I can see, I mean, it's pretty impressive to see them kind of build this out the way they are. You're bringing forward a fascinating example, right? Which is like a close in suburb densifying and rewiring, which is so interesting as a potential opportunity for the U S right? Like, why can't we look at some opportunities where certain suburbs uh, could become also more walkable, bikeable, where all the things you need are in that suburb instead of it's just a bedroom community uh, to go down to the central city to work. And then, you know, let's layer on, you know, Brian, the whole remote work thing. And, you know, we don't know where that's going, but it kind of feels like the genie got let out of the bottle and no one ever is going to be able to shove it back in again. I mean, I think it's potentially transformative. Um and just in my experience, you know, I keep telling people in city government, you know, the city departments that are the most flexible and work with people on how and where they want to work and when are going to attract and retain the best people. So let's, you know, layer that into the conversation too. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. I mean, the the model that you just touched on, I think that's been the way it's been in the, the D.C. metro area for a while. Um, remote work hasn't really change that or the fact that there has been remote work in this in this area uh, especially proximity to to the federal government um, for a period of time we have pockets uh suburban pockets that have become kind of mini cities like a like a tyson's corner for example yes and and arlington virginia which is one of the biggest uh cities in the country actually so i think it's it's definitely something that could proliferate out into the rest of the US when you look at at certain pockets that are growing like in Austin, Texas, right? Or a uh, we see that in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, but you see technology is really landing and then expanding. And that's been some of the biggest uh, impetuses to to make that work. When we when we take a look at at what this this future state could look like, what are some of the things cities could be deploying right now to help them along that journey? Can we start with like the simplest thing of planting more street trees? <laughs> I, yeah, so I mean, hold on, can I tell you? This is a proven thing. You can know? I tell um, you? I was having this conversation with one of my coworkers today. His wife is in, uh, she's an architect. And they were talking about what it looks like when they they go in and they cut trees down to build out these areas, especially new homes, right, for example. And the thing yes. that he was saying was apparently there is a female and a male tree and that the the male trees are are easier to deal with. So uh, from a from a growth perspective and environmental perspective and when these organizations that come in they go to replant trees no matter what they've cut down they replace them with uh, male-only trees because they're easier to plan and easier to tolerate the environment, but it's increasing the amount of pollen that we have in the air too. But I wonder what it could have 
from an environmental perspective going forward, if there is all of this construction happening in all of these cities and there's not a more intentional focus on kind of what we're putting back in to our environments as well? Well, and here's the thing, right? You know, you want to build housing near transit, right? Every major city in America has adopted some kind of like, you know, upzoning around transit. And then, um, you know, someone says, okay, great. I'm going to knock down these like small one or two story commercial buildings on this boulevard and build like 300 units of housing and, you know, five to seven stories. And they end up like clearing out 40 year old, you know, mature trees that have a 30 to 50 foot canopy and are providing all these ecosystem services. And then they plant in, in, in exchange, a 24 inch box tree. That's basically like six foot high and it's going to take 15 years to provide some significant shade. Um, we need to start seeing those mature, healthy trees as an asset and protect them in place. We can't just see them as an annoyance that we remove so that, you know, we can more easily build this housing. I mean, I, what the worst part of my job, uh, is signing the death warrant for street trees because we, we have to send these reports to the board of public works who ultimately makes the tree removal decisions for three or more trees. And my staff produces those reports and I have to sign them. And uh, we've gotten much, much more stringent. You know, we're, we're asking the question, should a healthy, mature street tree be removed simply because it's more convenient during the construction process or the, should the construction process accommodate the tree? You know, should the tree be removed because the architect put the driveway there? Or should we tell the architect, don't put the driveway there? Uh, these are all like very important things that are changing uh, in many different cities. And uh, it's really one of the great pleasures of my job really is to be this, you know, overseeing 225 people who are the stewards of 700,000 street trees in LA. 70% um, of which have now been cataloged on an online public facing map because we're doing a uh, cloud-based street tree inventory. That's, that's actually a really good segue into kind of what I wanted to uh, talk about next is around how the, the future of government work is really uh, integrated into sustainability, right? As organizations look to reduce their carbon footprint, we look at the proliferation of smart cities out there. Um, and with the future of government work, we can look at, at workplace as, as one of the three major pillars. And IoT devices are becoming a large a large way for uh, not just government organizations, but private sector organizations to increase efficiencies, to, to gain uh, energy efficiencies, and also help them with prioritization of staffing and all kinds of things. What are you seeing from a, an IoT perspective and, and smart workplace perspective, kind of how it's being folded into the sustainability conversation within government? Well, you know, one angle that really intrigues me because of the huge fleet of vehicles we have is, you know, telematics on the vehicles, you know, automatic vehicle location. And then what can you do with that information? Um, at that ACT Expo, I met with the chief sustainability officer for UPS and we were exchanging notes about our fleet strategy. And he said, the greenest mile is the mile you don't drive at all. And like, that was like a ding. I'm going to remember that one. You know, if you can use telematics to reduce unneeded vehicular trips or route your people smarter and better, you're not driving that extra mile of carbon. I mean, here's an example, right? Um, you know, we won an award for uh, putting tablets out in the field with our pothole inspectors. 
And one of the inspectors came up with this idea that when he was leaving a pothole, he'd query to see if any new pothole requests had come up in the area. And he was the first person who'd ever inspected them on the same day they came in. Because the old way was you printed out last night's potholes and you inspected them this morning. And even when people shifted to tablet, they were still doing that old workflow. So now all 24 of our inspectors are continuously querying. We're, think about how many miles we're not driving because they have real-time data in the field about where they need to go next and where the most efficient place would be to go. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a good example of just ways that government in general is getting smarter and bringing in some of the things that private sector has been doing for a while, especially from a fleet management perspective and so on and so forth, to really get smarter about that carbon footprint. I think it's not only going to help the environment from a sustainability perspective, but it's going to help the government's bottom line and allow them to save money that they can reinvest into other areas and hopefully uh, innovate in other areas. Um, before I give you a chance to uh, to give us some final thoughts, I wanted to ask you one last question. What do you see for the future of sustainability in general? If you had, if you could make some predictions or, or had some thoughts on the future, uh, what do you think? You know, I actually think that in cities, the sustainability focus is actually going to make cities much more livable and more pleasant. It's going to make cities greener and cooler. It's going to solve some of our water challenges. Um, it's going to create more sort of urban placemaking, places where you want to go and congregate and enjoy with your friends or family. I think we're actually going to rediscover how to make our cities into wonderful places to be enjoyed and to thrive rather than sort of an endless set of arterials taking people to other places, you know? Um, so I think that the benefits are actually going to be ex extremely exciting. Um, and I know that, like, for example, you know, my kids go to school in Santa Monica. Some people joke that it's the People's Republic of Santa Monica or whatever. But I've watched a growing number of parents, like, riding their bikes to school, dropping off the kids with, like, cargo bikes or electric bikes or tandem bikes. And you look at everybody's face and they're so happy. Like, the parent who's dropping the kid off on bike looks so much happier than the parent who's dropping their kid off in a $50,000 luxury SUV. So it's not just for the low carbon. It actually might be a lot more fun. I think that's, that's an interesting perspective um, about the, what the future of cities can look like, I think, within the U.S. and around the world. So um, as we wrap up, any final thoughts you want to leave with the audience today? I guess, you know, I'd just like to share that no one's really an expert because all this is new. So the opportunity, whether you're coming out of college, whether you're mid-career, whether you're, you know, at a senior level like I am, the opportunity space is almost unlimited because nobody can say, oh, I've got 25 years of experience doing this because this is a new thing. This is a set of many different new things and everybody's learning it together. There is nobody who's an expert, uh, like a 20 year expert on zero emissions, heavy trucking, for example. So there's so much opportunity. Anybody who's excited about this, dive right in, you know, uh, learn some of what you need to learn and then get out there and start being a practitioner because it's never been a more wide open playing field than it is right now. That's excellent. Hey, Greg, thanks again for the time today. I appreciate you being on the show to talk to us about 
some of the priorities you have and, and the future of your industry. It sounds really promising. Oh, it's my pleasure and uh, looking forward to meeting you in DC sometime. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast or wherever you listen to yours. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittistray B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.